Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks, howdy, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today's show is a little chat that I had with a fellow podcaster. He is not just a podcaster, he is also what I would call a radio personality as well. A radio DJ, and he has a podcast. He has a podcast called If That Ain't Country. And I found it a couple of, uh, well, almost a year ago. Found the podcast, really loved it, and found that he was playing the kind of country music that I really like. And he occasionally featured bluegrass as well. So I called him up and uh, we talked. So I just thought you would enjoy this. And if you like my show and if you like bluegrass, I bet you're going to like his show as well. So let's just go to this interview with Western Red of the If That Ain't Country podcast. All right, everybody, I'm here talking with Western Red of the If That Ain't Country podcast. And it is one of my weaknesses to wait for that show to come out every week. There are two podcasts that I dearly look forward to seeing pop up on the Internet each week. And the first one is mine, because when mine comes up, I know I'm done for the week and I could take a break and, you know, have a whole week to think of what I'm going to do next time. And the other one I look forward to is If That Ain't Country, because I am a closet, especially classic country and Western swing, uh, a, a closet, uh, I don't know if I'd call myself a fan or just almost a lunatic. I love that <laughs> old stuff. If you go, it, anything that was recorded on a record or perhaps a CD, that time period, all the way back to 78s, I totally love it. And Western Red has the show, If That Ain't Country, and I'm fully addicted to it. So welcome to the show, Red. My, that is some introduction. It's great to be on here. Thanks for having me, Brad. I'm glad to have you here. And I want to get into, among other things, I want to talk about, you know, how'd you get started doing this? Obviously, for anyone listening to you will notice your Australian accent. And so that immediately raises certain questions. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that and, you know, your background and history and how you got into what you're doing today. But I also want to, uh, you know, maybe dive into a little bit of some of the similarities between country and bluegrass, because I was telling my son this morning, bluegrass and country are, are basically two chicks that hatch from the very same nest. So we'll, we'll get into that. But why don't you begin by uh, just... Tell us a little bit about your podcast, the If That Ain't Country podcast. Well, sure. It's a, it's a weekly uh, podcast. It's a three-hour-long show. Uh, it, it was formatted, or formed, I should say, as a radio show to start with, and it still is. Uh, some years back, I started repackaging it as a podcast because that's kind of where, where listening is headed, you know, listening on demand and all that. Um, it's just a reflection of my uh, slight addiction to uh, traditional country music and the the various subgenres of country music that I considered when I was uh, sitting around thinking on how to start the show that I considered as pure, quote-unquote, and that being honky-tonk, 
traditional country, uh, western swing, and of course bluegrass. And it's uh, it's just a, a three hour podcast where I get to talk about my favourite subjects and uh, and you know dive it a little deeper than your average uh, radio program might do. Right. When did you when did you start the show and did it begin on radio first and then go to podcast or the other way around or how long has it been going? Well. It's a good question. I was actually working in radio back in Australia. Um, I was working for a uh, classic rock station at the time. And I kind of, you know, classic country radio doesn't really exist in Australia. Uh, So I kind of made this show on my own time. Uh, I just kind of started it as a reflection of my frustration in general as kind of what they were passing off as country on the radio. I hear you. Uh, And how far... And how far it yeah, had strayed from its roots. There's a lot of people like you and me, mate. Yeah. Um, and I just, I made the show initially as a uh, kind of a, I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. Nobody was listening to it. I was just making it for fun um, in the equipment, you know, after hours in the radio station. Um, <laughs> some of those old episodes are truly awful. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just a, a way to prove to me and to, to other folks that, the, the purer forms of American country music and bluegrass uh, are still being appreciated and still being made to this day. And it's just kind of grown from there. Initially, it was uh, a radio show that I went out to syndicate. And then three or four years after that, I kind of I launched into the podcast phase. Yeah. So uh, what year was it uh, approximately that you started the thing? Oh, pardon me. Uh, 2012 was the year that I say I started okay, it. That's pretty good, pretty good, pretty good while already. Uh, now, we have to get to this whole Australian connection. It's, uh, you know, when I first heard, I, I found your show just searching. You know, you would, I would pull them up on Apple Podcasts, be looking at mine, and it would suggest other podcasts. And so there's yours, and I click on it, and I start playing it, and I hear you talking. And I'm thinking, what? Well, wait a minute. It's like something doesn't register here, and... I knew it, obviously, a little bit about country music in Australia and New Zealand because I I had had a fella on my podcast talking about bluegrass and the history of country music back in uh, in Australia. A guy named Stuart Crawford, he did an episode. I don't know if you've heard that one, but you you might be interested in listening to that one. And it just huh. s- it struck me as, as a little odd, and that's probably good. It probably helps you be remembered a little more than, you know, the guy that sounds like he's from Nashville or something. You know, you got a little unique thing that people can, you know, a little peg they can hang their hat on to remember who the heck you are. But please, if you don't mind, back up and tell me a little bit about, you know, your personal roots. Obviously, Australia, how in the world did you go from that to Arkansas and where you are and what you're doing now? So kind of take us back. Yeah, it's um, it certainly raises a few eyebrows when I open my mouth, and sometimes it's for for the better, and sometimes you know I I, I butt heads with people uh, who you know what what the heck does this guy know about our music? And uh, well, I, I like to let the music do the talking, but uh, for the most part, uh, my story goes back to my dad. My dad is actually American. Um, was born in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, you know didn't really grow up on country music, but he was essentially a hobo. Uh, from about 12 or so, 12 or 13 years back in the 70s and the 80s. Um, something about him <laughs> not holding down too many permanent jobs. And he'd literally hitchhiked all around the country. He's been to near on every state, 
in the United States, Canada, Mexico, you know, all that. He was hopping freight trains and hitchhiking and sleeping on the side of a road. And he was essentially a hobo. And uh, the music that he related to during that time period uh, was your Mel Haggards, your Boxcar Willies, um, your Willie Nelsons, you know, songs that reflected his lifestyle. And that is where, and through people he met on the road who introduced him to uh, different uh, styles of country music and bluegrass. He always tells me about how he used to uh, listen to... uh, uh, the Country Gentleman and Seldom Seen on uh, Public Radio, yeah. a show they had up there when he was driving driving a cab in Anchorage, Alaska back in the, the mid-80s. But uh, long story short, he moved down to Australia or went down to Australia to photograph uh, a comet down there. Uh, he was into photography yeah. in 1986. Met my mum on the west coast of Australia. And, uh, well, that was the beginning of me. <laughs> and uh, he he uh, dragged her somehow back to Alaska, where he was living at the time. And, uh, you know, she thought it was too cold after about three years yeah. and drug him back to Australia. Now, both of the parents are living in Australia. I was raised on my dad's music. That's where it came from. There was always country music in the house. Right. And uh, I've become slightly obsessed with it over the last 25 years in the history uh, and to get this podcast, this radio show, to some level of, uh, you know, where it can actually be something more than just a hobby, I had to move stateside again. So it's really come full circle, and here I am in Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. that, that's just wild. I mean, everybody's got a father and a mother, but you don't get to pick them. And, and nope. It, it's just pure chance. You know, you're talking about your dad being a hobo. That's just. I mean, I can't even imagine that. My father came from a long line of farmers, Midwestern farmers, you know, and they, were, they tended to stay in one place, you know. They planted their roots mm-hmm. pretty deep. Of course, my dad was the guy that, that finally left the farm and started traveling around, and maybe he had a little of that hobo thing in him too. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> that that is interesting, to say the least. So you're out there right now. You're presently in Arkansas. And you've got the podcast coming out. And are you also on radio stations? You mentioned syndication. Uh, yes, sir. How much of that is going on? Well, uh, I, I these days I concentrate uh, just more on the product than syndicating it. But in the past couple of years, I've made a concerted effort to uh, to reach out to radio stations uh, around the country and around the world. Um, you know, hey, do you want do you want this show? You know, you don't have to pay to air it. It's it's pretty good. You know, trying to sell myself, of course. Right. Right. Um, and you know, some have have, have taken a bite and some haven't. And uh, you know, we've got a decent am- amount of affiliates around the country and uh, back home in Australia too. And uh, I, I work uh, weekdays on a classic country station here in Fort Smith, oh, uh, okay. Arkansas. Um, and so that's kind of my day job, and this is uh, my side hustle and my secret passion. <laughs> right, right. Well, it is clear that you love the what I call the golden age of country music, and everything you ticked off, you know, honky-tonk, classic country, western swing, and bluegrass, that's the stuff that I like. And I think it's probably true for maybe, I don't know, half of the bluegrass crowd, because I feel like... The bluegrass people that are out there today, some of them started listening when it was still kind of a part of country music. It was just another branch, a little more traditional, a little more acoustic. Yeah. 
where, uh, you know, a lot of people coming into it today, they're coming at it from the Grateful Dead and from, you know, they saw Del McCurry at some hippie festival or something, you know, and they're kind of coming in the other side. <laughs> and it's completely, you know, they don't they don't share the, the same roots. But one of the things I love about your show is, aside from all those boxes I just ticked off are exactly what I love, is that... You will hear a little bluegrass on If That Ain't Country. And so to me, that proves that you recognize bluegrass as a piece of country music. You knocked one out of the park on your last episode. You did a, a feature of J.D. Crow's, uh, J.D. Crow and the New South album, Lefty's Old Guitar. And so got to hear a few cuts from that and some other great stuff. I, let me just tell you this. From me and all the bluegrassers, the more bluegrass you can put in there, the happier we'll be. But I, I just want to hear your thoughts on how you feel like bluegrass and country are are related or, you know, of the same genetic material, you might say. Well, I'll be the first to admit that uh, I wasn't there when it was happening. I mean, I was born in the late 80s, so uh, I was a little late to the party. But from, from all I can gauge and from what I can hear... You're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, they both come from the same rural background. Uh, you know, country might have been a little quicker in its evolution to add uh, different elements and it made its way out to the West Coast and, you know, it, it sort of morphed from there as well as in Nashville. But uh, but bluegrass is, it, to me, it feels like a, another arm of the same, of the same beast. Um, you know, the acoustic uh, nature of country back in its early days you know, reflects the acoustic nature of bluegrass in its early days. Very similar themes in the music, very similar, uh, you know, people doing the singing from the same regions. Um, extremely, I mean, th back in those uh, golden days of bluegrass, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, they frequently borrowed from each other in terms of, of covers. I mean, Jimmy Martin would cover classic country hits all the time. Right. I mean, right. as would uh, a number of the big ones back then. Um, the Osborne brothers, of course, J.D. Crow. Um, so it does. It's not a stretch to see how they are related to each other. Uh, these days, uh, you've got to do a little more digging to really find those roots. And you know, like you mentioned, the people that might have seen Del McCurry at a hippie festival <laughs> might be right. a little further removed from uh, you know your Bill Monroe and that sort of thing. But uh, it, it's just there for the discovery, and and that's kind of what I like to do in, in the show is, is point people in, in the roots of the, of the genres. Yeah. One of the things I really, really love about your show is that you do take the time to talk about what you're playing. Not, not every tune all the time, but you know, in general, I'm going to learn some things. I, I, you're going to, you might play a song, uh, you know, it's three minutes long and talk for a minute and tell me a bunch of things that I did not know about who did it and what, you know, you really are clearly putting in the research. Yeah, uh, it takes me quite a while to do that, but it's it's a labor of love, absolutely. I mean, this is the sort of thing that I find infinitely interesting, and it's also the sort of thing that nobody is doing anymore, uh, at least on, on radio, podcasts. There might be a few out there that, you know, attempt to show you know tell the history of of bluegrass and, and country music but it's such a little thing and it's if you don't tell it people are going to forget it and if i find it interesting which a lot of the time i do i i figure other folks might enjoy some little sort of historical trivia tidbits as it were 
Well, I can tell you, I learn something every time I listen. You know, there'll be a, a, a song that I heard maybe when I was in college and I was hanging around this beer joint down in Tifton, Georgia, and I would hear this song <laughs> and then you pull it up and, and, you know, it's a song from 1981 or something and I'm hearing it and you just told me 15 things about that song that I had no idea about. You know, this this whole thing of uh, backing up a little bit to country music and bluegrass really, you know, hatching from the same nest, as I say, it, they really were the same thing. Bluegrass didn't even really get called bluegrass until I, I, I'd have to kind of look up and see what the, you know, the... Uh, the experts have written about it, but certainly not until the, the 50s or into the 60s. And, you know, before that, bluegrass was just associated with Bill Monroe. So, you know, Bill mm -hmm. Monroe and the bluegrass boys, two words, bluegrass. And, you know, he had the bluegrass quartet and everything. It was almost like a brand for Bill Monroe. And then as his imitators came along, playing very similar kinds of music and in many cases just knocking off what he was doing people like the stanley brothers mm -hmm. they didn't know what to call it and I, I heard a story and i don't know i can't swear that this is true but i heard a story i think it was from everett lilly of the lilly brothers um who said and he was playing with flat and scruggs so he was saying that they just recoiled at the any talk of Bill Monroe because they had left Bill Monroe, and they were trying to you know carve out their own niche in in a very similar kind of music. Clearly, Flat and Scruggs were playing bluegrass music too, but they didn't want to they didn't want to like mention Bill Monroe or bluegrass. And bluegrass, according to Everett Lilly, was it was like code word for Bill Monroe. So people would come up instead of asking Flat and Scruggs, "Hey, can you do that Bill Monroe song?" They would say, "Can you do that bluegrass song, such and such?" You know, and then they would, they would often ah. answer requests for Monroe tunes. But I think it it was what Everett Lilly called a feud word because anybody in bluegrass knows about the feud between Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe. But anyway, oh yeah, it's to me, and and I'm gonna turn it back to you here in just a second. But I want to mention one guy in particular who to me illustrates these connections that a lot of people might not think about between bluegrass and country. You know, you had Bill Monroe come out with the bluegrass boys and one of his early bass players was a guy named Howard Watts, AKA Cedric Rainwater. So he was Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys. Well, when Flatt and Scruggs left and started their own band, the Foggy Mountain Boys, Howard Watts joined Flat and Scruggs. And then you get up into the 1950s, and Howard Watts was the bass player for Hank Williams and the Drifting Cowboys. These guys were all hanging around backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. They all knew each other, and it was very common for a musician, especially sidemen, bass players, fiddle players, to be playing bluegrass one day and playing for Hank Snow the next, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, I just feel yes, like sir. it's all one big uh, stew pot, and many of those people knew each other, and, and you could probably trace a thousand connections like that if you followed each individual. I'm sure you're right on that. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much of a delineation there was back in those early days between, you know, the general hillbilly music, as it was at the time, and bluegrass. I mean, I'm, 
I, I'm not aware that there was a, a huge delineation because, as you say, Bill Monroe was on the Opry, uh, you know, and Flatten Scruggs later on the Opry and, and Jimmy Martin on the Opry. And, you know, as we rolled into the 60s, there was certainly, uh, and there was even, you know, charting hits uh, that Jimmy Martin had right. on mm-hmm. the on the country charts. So, I mean, and he was playing a, I guess it was a hybrid sort of driving form of bluegrass. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of links to the, to the same sort of uh, home place, for lack of a better word, and uh, and it's just it's funny to to think about at what point it really did become bluegrass, if it, indeed it was a code word for Bill Monroe music. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe that was just you know anybody hanging around Lester and Earl didn't want to didn't want to hack them off by mentioning Bill or something. But uh, you know, I, I think it, it as more and more bands came along who were imitating essentially what Bill Monroe did. You know, it was just natural for some sort of name to be able to incorporate all those bands, like the Country Gentleman, and and so on, all the way up to today with, you know, J.D. Crow and Del McCurry and everybody. I mean, some of those people actually have their bona fides, as you might say. You know, Del played mm-hmm. with Bill Monroe. You know, and Jimmy Martin played with Bill Monroe, and and so on. But, you know. When you get up into the uh, the seventies and you start getting into bands like Seldom Seen and and Newgrass Revival and things like that, these bands didn't play with Bill Monroe, but they certainly listened to him. I could absolutely hear that. I was uh, playing around with the Seldom Seen's uh, Old Train album yeah. uh, last night from from seventy four, and I mean you can hear some straight ahead traditional bluegrass on that album, as well as some of the more progressive elements, but. There's no doubt that John Duffy was taking a, a lead or two from Mr. Monroe from yeah. time to time. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, another thing I wanted to mention that I've often felt like the the sort of dividing line between bluegrass and country, even though they're all still rooted in the same root ball, you might say, was the introduction mm-hmm. of electric instruments. Because... I mean, I'm setting aside today where everybody is plugged in and playing over amps and stuff, but they're at least attempting today to create an acoustic sound. They're not really going electric, but certainly as the electric guitar appeared and the steel guitar and drums in country music, that seemed to be the dividing line because, you know, back even in the 70s, if you saw a bluegrass band you weren't going to see a, a Telecaster up there, and there wasn't going to be a guy sitting at a drum kit. There were some exceptions mm. to that, especially in the studio. You had Osborne Brothers and Jimmy Martin. Even Flatt & Scruggs had a little snare drum going on many of their songs. But it seemed to me like the instrumentation, whether it was acoustic or whether it had electric elements, seemed to be kind of where the parting of the ways happened. What do you think? I think, from from what I can gauge, I think that's about right. Um, I guess it was in the late or the mid to late '60s that I first came across, uh, you know, electric instruments in bluegrass. Not live. I'm talking studio stuff. Right. Um, for example, it was the Osborne Brothers. That was the one. I was, you know, I, I love bluegrass, um, and I've loved it for you know a better part of 20 years now. Uh, and I, I was listening to a, a Bear Family box set on the Osborne Brothers, which I just got my hands on. And this one track came on. I can't remember what it was. And I heard this instrument in the background. I thought, by golly, that's a steel guitar. What in the heck? Right. And I hadn't, you know, gotten too far into the genre at that point. 
And it kind of blew my mind because I was already a, a devotee of the, the pedal steel guitar. And when I heard it uh, mixed with, you know, traditional sounds of bluegrass, it just blew my mind. I think that's about right um, where the, the real delineation kind of uh, kind of came from. Because, I mean, I, I heard an interview once um, with Sonny Osborne, and I believe he said something to the effect that the only way that bluegrass musicians could get played on country radio was... Uh, to market it as country right um and to to program directors who who might not have an idea to the contrary uh, it was the only time you know back in the early to mid 60s that they could get their music on the radio and the electric instruments uh was was certainly a part of that push i would say yeah i i agree I, i've got a bunch of old jim and jesse records and uh osborne brothers stuff and and early jd crow you know jd crow the new south stuff oftentimes Steel and drums, you know, and you can even go back to Bill Monroe. If you go back to uh, in the 50s, trying to think who that uh, record producer was, Owen Bradley, guy named Owen Bradley, who uh, produced, yeah, on Decca, who produced a session for Monroe, and they basically kicked the band out of the studio. I think he had his fiddle player and his banjo player, and that was it. And they had an organ and electric guitar. And to me, it's the most atrocious, god awful thing I've ever heard. And you know, they tried. <laughs> I've to... actually heard that album. Have you? Have you? Yeah, I I was I remember look, looking at it, and my wife bought that one actually. Uh, she doesn't got a very big record collection, but she bought it, and uh, we put it on. And I, I had to go look up what what all was going on in the background there because it just sounded so out of place for what I knew of Bill Monroe. Yeah, like it you was say. totally weird. <laughs> But, you know, I, I guess that illustrates the point that, you know, on one hand, you want to play your art form. And on the other hand, you got to eat and you got to pay your bills. And, you know, the record companies were thinking, well, uh, maybe we could sell Bill as a, you know, a teenage rock star or something. <laughs> the world's most cantankerous teenage rock star. Well, think about Conway Twitty in his... Uh, later years they sort of repackaged him they kicked out the pedal steel and the fiddle and and they turned him into like i don't know he's like some kind of 50 something teen idol you know they just Golly. call him conway you, what. you know what you know what i'm talking about i haven't got any i have no time for conway past about 1980 <laughs> period well that's what i'm, I'm talking sorry about. man i love you but that's travesty <laughs> he probably made more money during that little brief phase though than than he did in all the prior time i'll bet well, so. I didn't. I didn't like slow hand when it first came out. Let alone the, the Conway Twitty remix. Right, <laughs> that's funny. Well, look, uh, tell everybody a little bit about one of the things you you cooked up is your record club, and I just think it's a killer idea because I'm addicted to vinyl records, even seventy eights. I don't at present have an eight-track player. I did have one, but it it uh, gobbled <laughs> my last Slim Whitman tape, and got all tangled up oh, with tape. Well, so that was the end of that thing. Well, <laughs> with, with all due respect, I think you could do do to lose the Slim Whitman tape, mate. However, Slim Whitman does kill Martians. <laughs> oh golly. I have not seen that movie in a long time, but that's digressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but anyway, I love records. I actually, you know, I would prefer to go and pull down a an LP than a CD. And I would certainly rather pull down a CD and listen to it 
than just go streaming on YouTube. And you've got this thing called the Record Club. Tell people about your Record Club and how they can be a part of it. Well, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to, to plug my wares, as it were. Uh, so the the radio show and the podcast, um, it is... Well, I'm a terrible salesman, so I have never had uh, one sponsorship dime come through the door that hasn't been uh, from, a, from a listener, essentially. Right. And uh, a while back, I made the decision that we were going to be listener-funded, you know, a la PBS or maybe uh, NPR or something like that. And the Record Club is just a really interesting way and a really fun way for me to kind of share the process that I go through in making the show each week. And I go through a stack of uh, records, LPs. Uh, I don't usually deal in 45s too much. Uh, it's normally LPs and CD albums. And um, I have a very large collection and it's I'm always, always buying more, always on the hunt. And my wife uh, always gives me the side eye uh, when I bring another package in through the door or, you know, <laughs> so, Been there, so she, that. you know, yeah, I bet you have, mate. Um, and so w- when I formulated the idea for the record club is a way to number one, uh, get a little off the top to keep the, the coffee hot and the power on the computer right. and the microphone going for the next show. Um, it's also a great way to, to share some of the, the traditional country and bluegrass that I come across in making the show and, and digging a little deeper into some of these names that, that people might not know, and then some of the bigger ones too. It's a it's a subscription service where listeners, if they choose, can sign up to get a CD or an LP that I use in the making of the show sent out to them once a month. They don't know what it's going to be, but it's always going to be traditional uh, bluegrass or traditional country. And uh, I write little uh, little synopsis, little uh, opinion piece about the article, about the uh, album in question. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a really cool way to, you know, to help out with the show if you like what I'm doing and uh, to get something delivered to you because everybody likes packages, don't they? Yeah, that, that is really cool. I actually have a friend of mine that I've, what I've been thinking about doing is uh, signing him up and let you send it to him because I know he would, he's kind of an old timer in the bluegrass uh, thing and. I know he he'd love to get them old records coming in about once a month. Give him something to do. He's eighty. He's uh, I think about eighty three. So I, I'll be talking to you off the air about how to how to well, sign him up. Well, I appreciate that. You might you might not you might not be surprised to know that I have uh, three octogenarians in my record club as we speak. <laughs> do you really? Yeah, that's funny. I, I do indeed. No joke. You know, I I just recently got a new turntable. I had loaned my one turntable out, it was like a JVC or something, to a guy, and it just never came back. I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but so I was for several years, didn't have one. And uh, my wife and son bought me a little, a little kind of inexpensive turntable, but thank goodness it had the 78 speed on it, because I still have a, a little stack of Bill Monroe 78s that I didn't have anything to play them on, but I'm an addict for actual vinyl and shellac. I tell you what, I, uh, sometime end of last year, bought myself a bunch of uh, uh, Ray Price and Lefty Frizzell. Turns out they were 78s. I haven't got a 78 player. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I've only got 33 and 45, so they're sitting there in a big pile. I might have to send them to you so you can appreciate yeah. them more than me. Oh, <laughs> send me the care package. Of course, you know, you can go on Amazon for 100 bucks and buy a, a little record player that'll play a 78. Just get one of those oh, little, yeah, but, uh, I've... <laughs> little Crosley knockoffs or whatever, Victrola or something like that. I think my wife would uh, 
give me more than just side eye if I brought a 78 player in. Yeah. You know, it, well, feel free to send me those 78s. Be sure to package them well because they are pretty fragile. I bought um, back, this is probably 15 years ago. Uh, I got on eBay and was just looking for Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys 78s. And I was buying these things for three bucks, two bucks, three bucks, and just bought a whole stack of them. And I think I've given away the majority of them. You know, somebody would be over for a little picking session or something. I'd say, come here. I got something I want to give you. Here's the original Bluegrass Breakdown. And, of course, they didn't even have anything to play it on. But there are probably a lot of 78s like that hanging on people's living room walls and stuff, you know. As oh little... man, I reckon so. That I reckon you ought to you ought to keep them yourself and and play them. How about that? Well, I I've got all that stuff. You know, all that stuff's been re-released and stuff. I've got it on CD and stuff like that. But having the actual record in your hand is kind of cool. Oh, I hear that. And and people can get them from you just by signing up with your record club. I was just going to say it's um you know a lot of these records that I come across. Uh, the point is is digging a little deeper past the hits to some of those gems, you know, that, that you really don't hear anywhere else. And, and that's the beauty of an album in the long form, uh, long play form. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, radio stations and radio shows only play, you know, the big singles and all that. And those LPs and, and CD albums just have a lot more going for them than uh, 2020 will have you realize. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. I, and I always like to just beholding the thing and looking at it. I mean, I, I think my mind was imprinted with, you know, imagery and I don't, I don't know. There was something about holding that record album while you listen to it. And sometimes they were those double fold out things with pictures and stuff. And, and that's just not present today. You go on YouTube and, you know, you pull up some Tony Rice record or something. It's just a a still shot of the album cover and it and the song plays. It's just not the same as handling it and reading no, like sir. who was the engineer and where was you know where did they record it and you know and albums of course you go way back and they don't contain a lot of information. But then as you got up into the folk era, they started really really writing liner notes and more and more detail where you actually knew who played the mandolin on the third cut on side B, where you know. Back in the 30s, you know, you're lucky to even know who you're even listening to, you know. I hear that. And that's the best thing, in my opinion, about records is, you know, you've got that vivid, I mean, if it's done right, you've got a, a great uh, cover shot and you've got, you know, some of the musicians on the back, if you're talking about in sort of the 70s onwards, like you said. Um, one of my favorite uh, memories recently of bluegrass and, and LPs and, and vinyl was when I was out digging, I found me a, a, a copy of uh, Jimmy Martin's Widowmaker, and uh, I guess it was about 1964, and I flipped it over, and it was signed by uh, uh, Jimmy Martin himself, and man, that made me happy. Wow. Him with his hat cocked, cocked to the side there, standing with a guitar in front of that semi on the front <laughs> with a Decca label. Man, that made me happy, I tell you what. Yeah, that is cool. I, it's, it's fun when you find one of those real gems. I found a mint... This was an Osborne record, Osborne Brothers record, not even had been unwrapped. And this is probably from about 68. I think it was like the album after they did Rocky Top. It had uh, Ronnie Reno mm -hmm. on there, a very young picture of Ronnie Reno. And I forget who, <laughs> who else was in the band. And uh, it was very cool. Just break that thing open. It never even been touched. 
and I played it, man. It sounded wow. great. Full, full of great pedal steel, too. Oh, yeah. That's a good period back in those days in the late 60s, yeah. early 70s for the Osborne brothers. You could tell they were trying really hard to have a follow-up to Rocky Top. I'm not sure they did it, but, they, you know, there were a couple of tunes on there that you could tell they were like, hey, we need to come up with something that sounds a little bit like Rocky Top. I think it was Sonny Osborne who said uh, that they had a, a follow-up um, that Felice and Boudelow Bryant had written to Rocky Top. Uh, they pitched it to the Osborne brothers, but for whatever reason, uh, they turned it down, huh. and uh, they've been kicking themselves ever since. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But, you know, I, I love those bands that really have have worked in both worlds. I, I think uh, Jim and Jesse and the Osbournes are certainly the, the classic examples of that, where you could tell that they were trying to play both sides, be, be country and be bluegrass, and, you know, it would be received with variable, you know, like the bluegrass people would be just distraught that they were had to put a pedal steel or something on their thing. And then the, the country people were like, hey, this is great. The jukebox is playing it, you know. Yeah, I hear that. I, I can only imagine how much consternation me back in the 60s would have felt uh, at at the the watering down of my of my traditions on both sides of the fence. But you know, 50 years later, to me, it sounds pretty good. But the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Yeah, I I I'm reminded. This is something I didn't. This is not an original thought of mine. I read it somewhere, but that one of the one of the difficulties for being in country music was that according to this person who I can't recall, I, I'm not going to quote the quote, but the audiences were always more conservative than the artist. So the artist might be wanting to try some new things and do, you know, go into some new areas, but they're, they're fans. They just want to hear that old blue moon of Kentucky, you know, just, you know, so much more conservative drag on some of the artists. And I think that's sort of disappearing today. I don't think, you know, it would hurt Del McCurry one bit to just come out and just record whatever the heck he feels like it. I think people would still uh, still appreciate, you know, whatever he's doing. They wouldn't demand that he plays it just like 1965. Yeah. Well, especially at some of them hippie festivals you mentioned. Exactly. Uh, but uh, exactly. But you're right. I mean, they must get sick of doing the same old thing again and again and again and uh, you know, whether it's the same songs again or the same style. As as a consumer, I mean, once I'm happy with someone's sound, I don't necessarily want them to change. And I'll be the first to admit I get mighty disappointed when somebody who's been a traditional bluegrass artist goes and, and makes themselves a, a record. Dan Tominski is one oh, such yeah. artist. I heard that uh, last one. Man, he, he did uh, Carry Me Across the Mountain, I think was the album, and then uh, the other one, Wheels. I mean, they were almost 10 years apart, but they were solid, traditional, modern, traditional bluegrass albums, and I loved them. And then he did that Southern Gothic thing right. a little while back, and my wife loved it, which gives you all you need to know. <laughs> right. um, and I, I was just scratching my head thinking, what? I really hope he comes back to bluegrass at some point, because he has one of the best high lonesome vocals I've ever heard in you know yeah. the later part of the 20th century. Well, if Ricky Skaggs is any kind of model... He'll be back. I mean, Skaggs, Skaggs left Bluegrass and just killed it in country. What, do you have like 10 number one country hits? And then he's back playing oh, he, Bluegrass. He absolutely nailed it. But uh, he, he did, uh, you know, he did uh, traditional country with uh, Bluegrass overtones, yeah. whereas Dan Tominski's done 
bluegrass and then I don't know even know what what his southern gothic album was it it kind of left me a little cold and a little bit disappointed I'm not ashamed to admit but I'm hoping he'll be back and and Ricky Skaggs is man he's just another example I've somehow managed to skip over in terms of of uh, bridging the gap and and doing it so well between uh, traditional country and traditional bluegrass well he's got a mountain of material too so any any sort of exploration into Ricky Skaggs you know requires a stack of about 80 records you know Oh yeah, I, I mean those early '80s albums with Bobby Hicks uh, on Epic um, oh, yeah. and Bobby Hicks on Fiddle is just out of this world good. It doesn't get much better than that. Um, I'd say that's even rival, rivaling George Strait in terms of uh, quality at uh, that new traditional movement in the early '80s. There. Yeah, I am proud to say that I saw them play on several occasions, and you know, live Mate. playing in Atlanta when when all that stuff was first happening and it was incredibly good that they were just super musicians that guy i can't remember his name that was playing steel um bruce, terry crisp I, i'm thinking like bruce somebody bruce bowden maybe I, I oh right he played on a lot of a lot of goth stuff in the 90s too yeah. Yeah, he's a great stealer yeah he was and of course hicks playing the fiddle and everything was just so well put together i mean they they played with such precision and I think that kind of came, I don't know, I shouldn't attribute all great qualities of music to bluegrass, but bluegrass training does you know, teach a musician a little bit about how to play fast and clean and together. I tell you what, it's, uh, it's tight and it's a very, very appealing, that Ricky Skaggs early stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but if, you know, I've, I always get told if you want to, Make a uh, a rock musician jealous. Put him in a room full of bluegrass pickers. <laughs> I've I've personally witnessed that uh, myself so many times. I because I know a lot of musicians and I know some great rock guitar guys in around the Atlanta area, and literally they just set their instrument down if if you put dropped them in a bluegrass. Thing. They just don't even know what to do, uh, but neither mm-hmm. would I. Wouldn't know what to do in their band either. But it is it is a highly technical um, and certainly high speed form of music. But then again, you get into some of that Western swing stuff. Thank goodness you you give us that shot of steel and you play a lot of swing. Man, when <laughs> I hear some of that stuff, especially the steel players. And I should say the guitar players too, and the fiddle players. But that steel, man! If if you're gonna, they're racing through tunes at what I call bluegrass tempos, and it's just incredibly difficult what they're doing on those instruments. Just amazing. Oh, I, I, it's it's unfortunate that a musical failure such as myself fell in love with the hardest. Uh, Music, uh, instrument to, to master out of all of that on a on a five-piece country band you know the pedal steel guitar is the most difficult by some way especially if you've got an e6 and a c ninth neck right um yeah or c6 and an e ninth i always mix those two up but uh i mean it's just some of those licks that those guys come up with uh is just incredible and, and, it, and it, it during the show it just feels like i really ought to have a segment to uh to spotlight how talented uh, the honky tonk iron lung that pedal steel guitar really you know you need to be to play it yeah and you know a lot of the if you watch some of the old tv shows like the old buck owens tv series and stuff like that sometimes they would do that they would you know feature the steel guy just let him you know play steel guitar rag or 
or something like that. Or at, at oh, a yeah. live show, I think they did it. But it just would always take a back seat on a record. Yeah, they. Uh, I know what you mean. Those uh, those steel solos. I mean, back in the early uh, years of, of, of steel solos, you got Leon McAuliffe with the, the Texas Playboys. And, of course, he did steel guitar uh, rag, I believe, initially. I think he was one who wrote it off the top of my head. Uh, or stole it from somebody else. I've also heard, but that was his song, and <laughs> right. you know he he got uh, you know a lot of stage time to perform that with Bob Wills, and you know, uh, Boot Hill Drag was another one, and uh, a Sleepwalk, right. uh, yeah. I believe, was a, a similar kind of stuff. You know, and there was a stack of instrumental albums back in, as you probably know, back in the fifties and the sixties, featuring you know Jimmy Bright and Speedy West, or Lloyd Green, or Pete Drake, or you know. Yep. Uh, any of those the major session pickers you know they often got label deals of their own and I don't know how many of those albums actually sold but um, you know it's a good way to spotlight uh, the, the picker in question hey speaking of uh, sort of like bringing that to the present have you have you played any uh, of the time jumpers on your show yes sir I uh, put a time jumpers song in my show a couple of weeks back i think man uh, i can't just... remember which one it was but those guys are hot they're the best triple fiddles east of the mississippi as i always say it's incredible <laughs> isn't doug green in that outfit he he is indeed and of He's, course uh, you still know kicking around his old ranger doug you know he was a bluegrass boy played bass for bill monroe you know what? I hate to admit it, but I did not know that. Yes, sir. I think he only did like a couple of months or something, but he was an official bluegrass boy before all the uh, Riders in the Sky stuff. I'll be Ranger Doug, the idol of American youth. That's I always salute when people say his name. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Rhett, I have enjoyed this tremendously. We should do this again sometime, and rest assured, when your podcast comes out, there's a guy down here in America's Georgia who's going to listen to it start to finish, setting all things aside, including repairing the air conditioner and mowing the grass. I'm putting everything aside until I'm done listening to that show. And at least there's one down here. And let's try to get some more. Well, man, <laughs> you ought to hear you ought to hear me smile right now, man. That made me happy. I'm <laughs> I'm really glad you're on board and I sure appreciate the the opportunity to come on and, and uh, shoot the breeze with you about some of my favorite subjects. Happy to have you on. And again, to the listeners of Grass Talk Radio, go scope out If That Ain't Country. You're going to love it. If you got any sense at all, you're going to love it. And the roots of bluegrass and country, as I said, they hatch from the same nest. And let's all thank Red for keeping this thing going. Anyway, thanks a bunch, Red. We'll be talking to you down the line. Yes, sir. I sure appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that little conversation with Western Red, and I hope that you will go check out his podcast. In particular, scope out a fairly recent episode, J.D. Crow in the New South, Lefty's Old Guitar Super Podcast, and there's a ton of other good stuff on there that doesn't have anything to do with J.D. Crow. I, every time I listen to his show, I hear some new stuff that I was unaware of. And it's just, he's really putting the time in, and I hope you will support him and become a listener. And you might even want to join his little record club and get some of those good old vinyl classics sent to your front porch. And I want to say also thank you for 
all of you who support this show through your little purchases over at my store, payhip.com slash Bradley Laird, and also you patrons over on patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And any of you, and I encourage all of you to do this. If everyone would actually do what I'm about to say, hey, maybe I could fix that air conditioner that's busted. Tell your friends about the show. If you like it, you got to know one or two other bluegrass people. Send them a little link. Say, hey, I've been listening to this guy for a long time. He's a real idiot, but I like his show, and you might like it too. So share the show around with the people that you associate with. So that's it. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. She's gone, I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of the world. Now she's gone, I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of the world.